PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts for May 2008. This month's research reports focus on Usefulness of the Berg Balance Scale in Stroke Rehabilitation, Altered Movement Patterns After Total Knee Arthroplasty, Locomotor Training and Chronic Pediatric SCI, Reference Curves for the GM-FM66 in Children with Cerebral Palsy, Work-Related Musculoskeletal Disorders in Physical Therapists, Footwear and Plantar Forces During Running, Pediatric Physical Therapists' Perceptions of Their Training in Assistive Technology, Gait Analysis Using the Dynamic Gait Index, Kinematic Analysis of Reaching Tasks in Post-Stroke Hemiparesis, and Chital Functional Test in Rheumatoid Arthritis. For clinical summaries of this issue and e-letters to the editor, visit www.ptjournal.org. First this month, Usefulness of the Berg Balance Scale in Stroke Rehabilitation, a Systematic Review, by Lisa Blum and Dr. Nicole corner This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. In a recent study of 655 physical therapists working with a stroke population, the Berg Balance Scale was identified as the most commonly used assessment tool across the continuum of stroke rehabilitation. Given the widespread popularity of the Berg Balance Scale, it's important to critically appraise the Berg Balance Scale for its use with a stroke population. The purposes of this study were to conduct a systematic review of the psychometric properties of the Berg Balance Scale specific to stroke and to identify strengths and weaknesses of its use in stroke rehabilitation. The researchers retrieved 21 studies examining the psychometric properties of the Berg Balance Scale with a stroke population. Internal consistency was excellent, as well as inter-rater reliability intra-rater reliability, and test-retest reliability. Sixteen studies focused on validity and generally found excellent correlations with all of the following. The Barthel Index. The Postural Assessment Scale for Stroke Patients. Functional Reach Test. The Balance Subscale of the Fugelmeyer Assessment. The Functional Independence Measure. The Rivermead Mobility Index and gait speed. Berg Balance Scale scores predicted length of stay, discharge destination, motor ability at 180 days post-stroke, and disability level at 90 days. But these scores were not predictive of falls. Eight studies focused on responsiveness and all studies reported moderate to excellent sensitivity. Three studies found floor or ceiling effects. The Berg Balance Scale is a psychometrically sound measure of balance impairment for use in post-stroke assessment. Given the floor and ceiling effects, clinicians may want to use the Berg Balance Scale in conjunction with other balance measures. Lead author Lisa Blum is a research coordinator in the Faculty of Medicine at the School of Physical and Occupational Therapy at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Next, 
Persistence of altered movement patterns during a sit-to-stand task one year following unilateral total knee arthroplasty by Sarah Farquhar, Dr. Darcy Reisman, and Dr. Lynn Snyder-Mackler. Following total knee arthroplasty, TKA, quadriceps femoris muscle strength and functional test scores improve, but they continue to be lower than those in people without injury. Analysis of the sit-to-stand task demonstrated side-to-side differences in subjects with TKA, as well as differences between subjects with TKA and control subjects. The authors hypothesized that when using a self-selected starting position, subjects who were one year following TKA would show improvements in strength and movement patterns, but they would continue to show asymmetries of angles and moments at the hips and knees. Twenty-four subjects were recruited. Twelve subjects had unilateral TKA, and twelve were control subjects. Subjects with TKA were tested three months and one year following surgery. Motion analysis of a sit-to-stand task was synchronized with two force platforms and electromyography. Outcome measures included joint angles and moments, electromyography, vertical ground reaction forces, muscle strength, and functional performance tests. Subjects with TKA showed improvements in symmetry of motion, strength, and functional performance from three months to one year following TKA. Compared with control subjects, subjects with TKA relied on increased hip flexion and a larger hip extensor moment to perform the sit-to-stand task. The increased hip extensor moment demonstrated that subjects adopted a strategy to avoid the use of the quadriceps femoris muscle. Yet, this strategy persisted as quadriceps femoris muscle strength improved. This pattern may be a learned movement pattern that may not resolve without retraining. Lead author Sarah Farquhar is a doctoral student in the Graduate Program in Biomechanics and Movement Science and the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Delaware in Newark, Delaware. Locomotor training restores walking in a non-ambulatory child with chronic, severe, incomplete cervical spinal cord injury. By Dr. Andrea Behrman, Preeti Nair, Mark Bowden, Dr. Robert Dowser, Benjamin Hergett, Jennifer Martin, Dr. Chaitan Padke, Dr. Paul Ryer, Dr. Claudia Senesak, Dr. Floyd Thompson, and Dr. Dina Howland. Locomotor training enhances walking in adult experimental animals and humans with mild to moderate spinal cord injury, SCI. The animal literature suggests that the effects of locomotor training may be greater on an immature nervous system than on a mature nervous system. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the effects of locomotor training in a child with chronic, incomplete SCI. The subject was a non-ambulatory four-and-a-half-year-old boy with an American Spinal Injury Association Impairment Scale C Lower Extremity Motor Score of 4 out of 50. The subject was deemed permanently wheelchair-dependent and was enrolled in a locomotor training program 16 months after a severe cervical SCI. A pretest-post-test design was used in the study. Over 16 weeks, the child received 76 locomotor training sessions using both treadmill and overground settings in which graded sensory cues were provided. The outcome measures were American Spinal Injury Association Impairment Scale Score, 
gait speed, walking independence, and number of steps. One month into locomotor training, voluntary stepping began, and the child progressed from having no ability to use his legs to community ambulation with a rolling walker. By the end of locomotor training, his walking independence score had increased from 0 out of 20 to 13 out of 20, despite no change in lower extremity motor score. The child's final self-selected gait speed was about one-third of a meter per second, with an average of 2,488 community-based steps per day and a maximum speed of almost half a meter per second. He then attended kindergarten using a walker full-time. A simple context-dependent stepping pattern sufficient for community ambulation was recovered in the absence of substantial voluntary isolated lower extremity movement in a child with chronic severe SCI. These novel data suggest that some children with severe, incomplete SCI may recover community ambulation after undergoing locomotor training and that the lower extremity motor score cannot identify this subpopulation. Note that two invited commentaries appear with this article in print and online, and a supplemental video is posted online. Lead author Dr. Andrea Behrman is an associate professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the College of Public Health and Health Professions at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida, and a research scientist at the Brain Rehabilitation Research Center at the Malcolm Randall VA Medical Center in Gainesville. Next, reference curves for the gross motor function measure percentiles for clinical description, and tracking over time among children with cerebral palsy by Dr. Stephen Hanna, Dr. Doreen Bartlett, Lisa Riverd, and Dr. Diane Russell. Physical therapists frequently use the 66-item gross motor function measure with the gross motor function classification system to examine gross motor function in children with cerebral palsy, CP. Until now, reference percentiles for this measure were not available. The aim of this study was to improve the clinical utility of this gross motor measure by developing cross-sectional reference percentiles for the gross motor function measure within levels of the gross motor function classification system. To develop percentiles, a total of 1,940 motor measurements from 650 children with CP were used. These observations were taken from a subsample of subjects in a longitudinal cohort study reported in 2002. The subsample was stratified by age and the gross motor function classification system. A standard LMS method was used to develop cross-sectional reference percentiles. The LMS method summarizes the changing distribution of the gross motor function measure scores as a function of age in terms of three curves representing the skewness, median, and coefficient of variation. Reference curves were created for the gross motor function measure by age and gross motor function classification system level and were plotted at the 3rd, 5th, 10th, 25th, 50th, 75th, 90th, 95th, and 97th percentiles. The variability of change in children's percentiles over a one-year interval was also investigated. The reference percentiles extend the clinical utility of the gross motor function measure and gross motor function classification system by providing for appropriate normative interpretation of gross motor function measure scores within gross motor function classification system levels. When interpreting change in percentiles over time, physical therapists must carefully consider the large variability in change that is typical among children with CP. The use of percentiles should be supplemented by interpretation of the raw scores 
to understand change in function as well as relative standing. Lead author Dr. Stephen Hanna is an associate professor in the Department of Clinical Epidemiology and Biostatistics and an investigator at the Can Child Center for Childhood Disability Research in the School of Rehabilitation Science at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Work-Related Musculoskeletal Disorders in Physical Therapists, a Prospective Cohort Study with One-Year Follow-Up by Dr. Mark Campo, Dr. Sherry Weiser, Dr. Karen Koenig, and Dr. Margareta Norden. Work-Related Musculoskeletal Disorders have a significant impact on physical therapists, but few studies have addressed the issue. Research is needed to determine the scope of the problem and the effects of specific risk factors. The objectives of this study were to determine the one-year incidence rate of work-related musculoskeletal disorders in physical therapists and to determine the effects of specific risk factors. This was a prospective cohort study with one-year follow-up. Subjects were 882 randomly selected American Physical Therapy Association members. Exposure assessment included demographic data, physical risk factors, job strain, and specific physical therapy tasks. The primary outcome was work-related musculoskeletal disorders with a severity rating of at least 4 out of 10 and present at least once a month or lasting longer than a week. The response rate to the baseline questionnaire was 67%. 93% of the subjects who responded to the baseline questionnaire responded to the follow-up questionnaire. The one-year incidence rate of work-related musculoskeletal disorders was about 21%. Factors that increased the risk for work-related musculoskeletal disorders included patient transfers, patient repositioning, bent or twisted postures, joint mobilization, soft tissue work, and job strain. The primary limitation of this study was the number of physical therapists who had a change in their job situation during the follow-up year. Work-related musculoskeletal disorders are prevalent in physical therapists. Physical therapy exposures, patient handling, and manual therapy in particular increase the risk for work-related musculoskeletal disorders. Lead author Dr. Mark Campo is an assistant professor in the program in physical therapy at Mercy College in Dobbs Ferry, New York. Next, Influence of Different Footwear on Force of Landing During Running by Roy Chung and Dr. Gabriel Ng. Previous studies have demonstrated an increase in foot pronation with mileage in runners. Motion control footwear was designed to check excessive foot motions, but its clinical efficacy, especially in terms of pedographic analysis, has not been well reported. The purposes of this study were to investigate the changes in plantar force in people when running with motion control shoes and to compare pedographic measurements obtained by using an insole to register the plantar force of the subjects before and after running 1.5 kilometers and under two different shoe conditions, wearing motion control shoes and wearing neutral shoes. 25 recreational runners who had at least six or more degrees of foot pronation participated in the study. The study found that there was no change in the magnitude and distribution pattern of plantar force with the motion control shoes after the 1.5-kilometer run. 
With the neutral shoes, however, there was a 15% increase in mean peak force under the medial midfoot and an 8% increase under the first metatarsal head toward the end of the running bout. The plantar force on the medial foot structures increased with mileage of running with neutral shoes but not with motion control shoes. This finding has implications for injury prevention with footwear selection for recreational runners who have more than six degrees of foot pronation. Lead author Roy Chung is a graduate student in the Department of Rehabilitation Sciences at the Hong Kong Polytechnic University in Hanghom, Kowloon, Hong Kong, China. Pediatric Physical Therapists' Perceptions of Their Training in Assistive Technology by Dr. Toby Long and Dr. Deborah Perry. Availability of assistive technology and federal legislation promoting greater use of assistive technology for children with disabilities have increased substantially. The purpose of this study was to determine the perceived adequacy of previous training in assistive technology, specific training needs, preferred methods of training, and the confidence level of pediatric physical therapists in providing assistive technology. 380 pediatric physical therapists responded to a survey questionnaire mailed to a random sample of members of the Section on Pediatrics of the American Physical Therapy Association. The survey was used to determine training needs of physical therapists in the area of assistive technology, their confidence in delivering assistive technology services, preferred methods of training, and challenges in becoming trained. The physical therapists reported having less than adequate training in assistive technology and a lack of confidence in delivering assistive technology services. They also reported that they would like accessible and affordable training that focuses on funding technology and services, knowledge of specific devices, and assessment and evaluation methods. The findings underscore the need to develop pre-service, in-service, and continuing education training opportunities in assistive technology for providers working with children who have disabilities. Lead author Dr. Toby Long is an associate professor, the director of training, and the director of the Division of Physical Therapy in the Center for Child and Human Development at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. She is also the lead investigator of the training needs of interdisciplinary team members in assistive technology. Next, Temporal and Spatial Characteristics of Gait During Performance of the Dynamic Gait Index in People with and People Without Balance or Vestibular Disorders by Dr. Gregory Marchetti, Dr. Susan Whitney, Dr. Philip Blatt, Laura Morris, and Joan Vance. An understanding of the underlying gait characteristics during performance of the Dynamic Gait Index could potentially guide interventions. The purpose of this study was to describe the characteristics and reliability of gait performance during the level walking items of the dynamic gait index in people with balance or vestibular dysfunction. The study was a cross-sectional investigation with two group comparisons. Participants were 47 subjects ranging in age from 24 to 90 years with a mean age of 59 years. 26 were control subjects and 21 were subjects with balance or vestibular dysfunction. Three trials of each level gait item were administered to subjects as they ambulated on an instrumented walkway. 
test-retest reliability was determined by use of an intra-class correlation coefficient two-way random effects model for gait parameters associated with continuous walking and the item requiring turning and stopping quickly. Mean gait parameter differences between control subjects and subjects with balance or vestibular disorders were compared by use of a multivariate analysis of variance for each gait task. The reliability of most gait parameters during dynamic gait index performance was fair to excellent between trials. Subjects with balance or vestibular disorders demonstrated differences in gait characteristics compared with control subjects. The heterogeneity of the group of subjects with balance or vestibular disorders does not permit inferences to be drawn regarding the relationship between gait and any specific balance or vestibular diagnosis. The results are most pertinent to people with chronic balance or vestibular disorders. Gait parameters underlying dynamic walking appeared to be relatively reliable across multiple trials and distinguished subjects with balance or vestibular disorders. Evaluating a person's performance on items of the dynamic gait index may be useful in identifying gait deviations and in evaluating gait improvements as a result of interventions. Lead author Dr. Gregory Marchetti is an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at Duquesne University and an assistant professor in the Department of Otolaryngology at the University of Pittsburgh, both in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Reproducibility and minimal detectable change of three-dimensional kinematic analysis of reaching tasks in people with hemiparesis after stroke by Dr. Joanne Wagner, Jennifer Rhodes, and Dr. Carolyn Patton. Three-dimensional kinematic analysis of reaching has emerged as an evaluative measure of upper extremity motor performance in people after stroke. However, psychometric properties have not been established to support the use of kinematic data for evaluating longitudinal change in motor performance. The objective of this study was to determine in a test-retest reliability manner the reproducibility and minimal detectable change for reaching kinematics in people after stroke. Fourteen participants with hemiparesis after stroke performed forward-reaching tasks on two occasions about 37 days apart. At each session, participants performed four forward-reaching tasks produced by the combination of two target heights, and two instructed movement speeds. Two analytical methods were used to calculate kinematic parameters. Relative reliability ranged from 4% to 99%, and absolute reliability ranged from about 3% to about 77%, depending on the kinematic variable, the demands of the motor task, such as target height and movement speed, and the analytical method. Bland-Altman analysis, a statistical method used to assess the repeatability of a method, revealed few systematic errors between sessions. The minimal detectable change ranged from 7% to 99%. Depending on the demands of the motor task and the analytical method, most kinematic outcome measures are reliable measures of motor performance in people after stroke. Such outcome measures include peak hand velocity, endpoint error, reach extent, maximum shoulder flexion range of motion, 
and minimum elbow extension range of motion. However, because of the magnitude of within-subject measurement error, some variables must change considerably. These variables, such as pecan velocity, time to pecan velocity, and movement time, must change more than 50%, at least, to indicate a real change in individual participants. The results of our reliability analysis, which are based on our cohort of participants with hemiparesis after stroke and our specific paradigm, may not be generalizable to different subpopulations of people with hemiparesis after stroke, or to the myriad movement tasks and kinematic variables used for the assessment of reaching performance in people after stroke. Lead author Dr. Joanne Wagner is a research health scientist at the Rehabilitation Research and Development Center of the VA Palo Alto Healthcare System in Palo Alto, California. And last this month, Keitel Functional Test for Patients with Rheumatoid Arthritis. Translation, Reliability, Validity, and Responsiveness. By Bente Holm, Dr. Soren Jacobson, Dr. Henrik Skirt, Dr. Mette Klarlund, Dr. Trina Jensen, Dr. Mireta Hetland, and Dr. Mikkel Ustergaard. The purpose of this study was to translate the German Keitel functional test into Danish and test it for reliability, concurrent and predictive validity, and responsiveness in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Translation of the Keitel functional test was performed according to international recommendations, and the translated version was tested twice by two observers for intra-observer and inter-observer reliability with a one-week interval between assessments. Subjects were 20 patients with rheumatoid arthritis and with stable disease activity. Validity was investigated by studying two patient groups. The first group consisted of 15 patients with active rheumatoid arthritis for about six years. These patients were tested before and after two, six, and 14 weeks of anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitor therapy. The second group consisted of 35 patients with early rheumatoid arthritis. These patients were tested upon study enrollment and again after six months, one year, and two years. 23 patients in this early rheumatoid arthritis group also were tested at the seven-year mark. The following assessments were used. The Keitel Functional Test, Conventional Clinical and Biochemical Markers of Disease Activity, and Health Assessment Questionnaire. The translated Keitel functional test showed good intra-observer reliability and inter-observer reliability. The test correlated with several measures of disease activity and correlated most closely with the health assessment questionnaire. In contrast to clinical disease activity measures, the Keitel functional test was not sensitive to changes over time. Only baseline data were significantly related to functional changes over a long period of time as measured by the Keitel functional test and only in the early rheumatoid arthritis group. The Danish translation of the Keitel functional test showed good reliability, acceptable concurrent validity, very poor responsiveness, and inconclusive results concerning predictive validity. The results of this study do not support the use of the Keitel functional test for monitoring function in clinical practice as an outcome measure in clinical trials or as a predictor of functional changes. Lead author Benta Holm is a research physiotherapist in the Department of Physiotherapy at Copenhagen University Hospital at Vidova in Copenhagen, Denmark. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. For feedback on this podcast, 
email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825. We look forward to hearing from you.